This is Deep Dish on Global Affairs, going beyond the headlines on critical global issues. I'm Brian Hansen with the Chicago Council on Global Affairs, and today we're debating whether the U.S. has a responsibility or even an interest in supporting pro-democracy protests abroad. There are many big questions being asked today about the appropriate role of the U.S. in the world, and one of those has been triggered by mass demonstrations that have emerged around the world in recent months. As you know, demonstrations have erupted in places like Hong Kong, Lebanon, Iraq, Iran, Russia, Chile, and Haiti, just to name a few of them. Some protesters have taken to the streets in response to a specific grievance, others in opposition to a specific leader, But a through line for many of these protests has been bigger ambitions to bring about more democratic regimes. So here's the question. Should the U.S. support this desire for democracy abroad? Joining me to discuss and debate this issue are two experts with different views. Rochelle Terman is a provost postdoctoral fellow in the Department of Political Science at the University of Chicago. Welcome, Rochelle. Great to have you on Deep Dish. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Also joining us is Paul Post, who is an associate professor also in the Department of Political Science at the University of Chicago. I should also mention that Paul is a non-resident fellow on foreign policy right here at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. Welcome, Paul. Great to have you here as well. Thanks, Brian. Really excited to be here. So, Paul, I want to start with you. You've recently argued that, broadly speaking, there are two ways to think about this question of whether the U.S. should engage in in support of pro-democracy protests. You frame one option as America first and the other even more colorfully as Spider-Man. What are these two different? What are these two approaches? So, yeah, thanks for asking. So when Rochelle and I have talked about this topic, these are kind of the two general ways that you can think about it. So to start off, the America first is literally that America first, maybe even second, maybe even third, that that should be our priority. Um, And if it just so happens that we can help out others in that process, great. But that should in no way be a priority for the United States. Spider-Man, the idea behind that is, of course, hearkening to the famous line from the comic books and then eventually from the movie that with great power comes great responsibility. And that, yes, of course, the U.S. should take into account its own interests, but because the U.S. is such a dominant power in the world, um, the unipolar moment, as people will refer to it, or a hegemonic power, because of that, the U.S., has to take into account that there are issues around the world that it can influence and that it is, in many ways, you can make even a moral argument that it has a responsibility to try to influence these, even if you can't directly point to a material gain from trying to influence those issues. And so those are, broadly speaking, kind of the two frames, the Spider-Man model, if you will, and the America First model. And each of you leans toward one or the other, which is great. And why oh, the, the value of this conversation is really to unpack kind of what's at stake in these differences. And, and Rochelle, you're in the Spider-Man camp, um, that the U.S. should indeed support pro-democracy movements abroad. What's, what's your argument? Why is this important for the U.S. to do? Yeah, so I think that there are different levels to this responsibility. 
First, we care about democracy because we should care about human freedom and welfare. There's a lot, not a lot that we know as political scientists, I mean really know, but we do know, and I mean really know, that democracy is the best form of government for human welfare. Democracies have less famine, more political stability, better economic conditions, better human rights conditions. They fight less, um, with, especially with one another. So people generally live better lives under democracy governments. And empirically, it's really hard to deny this. Now, improvements in the lives of individuals in other countries matter to Americans because the United States cannot insulate itself from the world. It may be a cliche to say that the world is becoming more interdependent, but it's undeniable that changes in communications, technologies, trade flows, the environment have created a more interconnected world. So these trends give the United States a greater stake in the fate of other countries and other societies because widespread misery abroad may create political turmoil, economic instability, refugee flows, and so on, environmental damage, of course, that will affect Americans. So democracy around the world really impacts democracy that we have here at home. Um, if I could take the argument one step further to, uh, to add another layer to this, in some ways, every country has a responsibility, I believe, to support democracy abroad. But for the sake of argument, let me go even further and say that America has a special responsibility to support democracy protests. And that's where the Spider-Man principle comes in, that with great power comes great responsibility. Um, as Paul just mentioned, we live in a unipolar moment. America is the hegemon. Um, so we play an outsized role in the success or failure of democracy protests. So if you or I have an individual responsibility or ethical duty to support democracy, America as a country or as a corporate actor has about a billion times that responsibility or ethical duty by virtue of its power to determine outcomes. Um, now, some may argue, and I expect that perhaps Paul may argue, <laughs> <laughs> that America should just remain neutral in these fights. Um, but I propose that we cannot be neutral. Um, in the first place, we simply have too much power to be neutral. Maybe Montenegro can be neutral. Um, no you know, shade on Montenegro. Um, but we can can't, even if we wanted to. That, that is, when America fails to support democracy protests, the world interprets that as de facto support of the status quo, which by definition is less democratic in the way that I understand the, the, the debate. Um, another reason why America can't be neutral is because America is responsible to some extent for many of the authoritarian regimes that are currently challenged by democracy protests, whether that's through direct or covert intervention, especially during the Cold War, or the propping up of dictators like we've done in Saudi Arabia. So we have a sort of reparative duty, if you want to think about it that way. We haven't been neutral in the past. We have our fingers in the pie, so to speak. So we can't be neutral now. And then the last point that I'll make is that America bases its hegemony and its power on an international order that is fundamentally built on the ideal of democracy, in addition to other ideals like economic liberalism and international peace. So America has a responsibility to support democracy because it has assumed that responsibility for itself. Um, after World War II, the U.S. made a deal with the rest of the world that says, hey, let us run the world. We'll build up an entire set of international institutions designed around our interests, and in return, 
will maintain an order based on these principles that include democracy. So far, we as a country have benefited greatly from that system. But if we don't support democracy, even the ideal of democracy, so just even the ideal that of some moral or ethical duty towards democracy, we're in effect nullifying the legitimacy of the international order as we know it. So in the face of that, we really have three choices. Either we can be hypocrites, which is to say that we say that we support democracy, but don't. And that's the approach that I think we've taken um, so far in the last few decades. It hasn't worked out that well. We can either give up and be isolationist, in which case we abdicate not only our ethical responsibility, but our hegemonic status and the entire international order entirely as we know it and let Russia or China take over. However you feel about American hegemony, and I'm very skeptical myself, I think that there are very few people who are willing to resign that role completely. And then the last possibility, which is what I'm advocating for here, is that we actually live by the principles that we ascribe to. Terrific. Uh, that's a very comprehensive argument that combines um, moral issues, value issues, together with, with interests um, of the United States. Paul, you were given two options as the America first person, either hypocrite um, <laughs> right. or abdicator. Right. My guess is that you see it differently. Why don't you buy It's a very sophisticated argument that you just heard. Um, why don't you buy it? How do you see this issue? So I think the idea behind the America First is is the notion that in the abstract, a lot of what was just said is is true. Actually, that there should be in an ideal world, yes, uh, the U.S. could go around and actually uh, help promote these values. But I think something that helps to put everything into focus was actually a statement by President Trump's former Secretary of State, uh, Rex Tillerson, where he said, and this was um, from a statement that he made during a speech about human rights in the Middle East. And he said, it is really important that all of us understand the difference between policy and values. Our values around freedom, human dignity, the way people are treated, those are our values. Those are not our policies. In some circumstances, you can condition our national security efforts on someone adopting our values. We probably, if you do that, we probably can't achieve our national security goals. And I think that statement actually very well captures the notion behind America First, which is it's not to say that we don't value democracy. It's not to say we don't value human rights, but it's to say that if you start setting your policies around the promotion of these values, that could actually undermine U.S. efforts to achieve, first and foremost, its national security. And, you know, this was also stated very bluntly, as he tends to do by President Trump. Uh, also, back in 2017, when there was a summit held in Saudi Arabia, of course, you could imagine his audience. He had reasons to say it this way. But he said, quote, America is a sovereign nation, and our first priority is always the safety and security of our citizens. We are not here to lecture. We are not here to tell other people how to live, what to do, who to be, or how to worship. And that, again, is the idea behind, I think, a, a, a different way of thinking about what America first, what that policy means, is it's, again, not to say that you don't hold certain values and you don't think that in the ideal everybody has these values, but you're not going to lecture and you're not going to tell others to adopt those values. The basic idea behind it is the notion that, look, resources are finite, even for a major power like the United States, even for a global hegemon. 
resources are finite, and so there are problems at home that have to be focused on first before you go around and try to solve other people's problems. And moreover, it goes to the extent of saying, and if you try to solve other people's problems, and I think this is really the essence of what Tillerson was getting at. If you try to solve other people's problems, you can actually make situations worse. You can actually undermine what are really U.S. national security interests. Um, Many examples of this. I mean, an extreme, extreme, extreme example would be if you took George W. Bush's rhetoric to heart to say that the goal of Iraq, the Iraq invasion, was to promote democracy there. Um, And the idea that we will be hailed as liberators. And, of course, by taking that action, we... Well, it has not worked out that well. And that would be an extreme example of where if you took it genuinely, and of course we could debate whether that was genuine to actually promote democracy, but that extreme example would be a case in point. And the reality is is that for much of U.S. history, that has really been the view, has been the U.S. focusing on itself, focusing on its views, um, focusing on its own problems at home, and in some respects, you could say that what happened was World War I came along and suddenly the U.S. was thrust onto the world stage into this position of responsibility, this position of power, and probably was not yet in a position to really take on that responsibility. And what that led to was problems, that if the U.S. then said, okay, well, I guess now we're in this position where we'll start to fix everybody else's problems, well, it leads to situations that then in turn can backfire. And the only times that the U.S. has taken on an active role of trying to, say, establish a democracy or promote these movements has been when it has become very materially clear that doing so was in U.S. national security interests. Case in point, Germany. Case in point, Japan. By actually establishing, occupying those countries and establishing democratic regimes, those were done very reluctantly on the part of the United States, but for the purpose of preventing another major war that would drag the United States into it. So at the end of the day, the idea behind America first, if you were to really take it, I think, at its heart, is the notion that there are problems at home, those should be focused on. And even though we have these values and we would love everybody to adopt these values, if you start setting your foreign policy according to the pursuit of those values, you can actually do more harm, not just to U.S. security interests, but even to those you're trying to help. Let me engage just a little bit on that and pick up on a couple of points um, that Rochelle made, and you're welcome to jump in as well. You pointed to two situations, Germany and Japan, where it actually was in U.S. interests, in your argument, in order to engage and promote democratization processes. Um, And the cases that we kind of set this up with are cases where there are indigenous democracy moments as opposed to coming in from the outside, right? So kind of the Iraq thing where we set that agenda. That's a different different kind of thing. Um, some people argue that it is that shared set of values, those shared ambitions about what kind of world we want to live in that are, embas- that are embedded in values that actually provide the basis for the security, the common kind of purpose um, uh, that provides for our security. Um, do you buy that argument or, or what's wrong with that in your mind? I think the essence of the America First argument is that there's kind of two different assumptions that you can take about how the world works. And one assumption is that the best way to achieve security is through this kind of this notion of shared values, that if we all share the same values, then that'll achieve security. And so it's really just a matter of ensuring that we all 
share those values. Um, the other way is to say, no, the best way to achieve security is to make sure that everyone is in a position where they feel like their sovereignty is secure and that they feel like they have an environment where they can set their own policies and not be interfered with by others. And I think that those are, in many ways, conflicting views. And I think that the America First takes that second view, that that is the best way to ensure that the world is secure and safe, is to allow everyone to kind of set their own agenda. But there's another view that says, no, the best way to do this is to make sure everyone shares the same values. Of course, that leads to a big question. If that's the view you're going to take, which values? Whose values? Why those values? And that, again, leads to going back to that Tillerson quote of, if you start setting U.S. policy according to these are our values, it can lead to a lot of unintended consequences, situations backfiring, and actually in many ways undermining U.S. security. So I think that would be kind of the pushback, if you will, to that view. Sorcia, let me bring you in. Why aren't you convinced and what would be an example of an action that you think the U.S. should take in a, in a current case? Well, let me just respond um, to Paul's two views argument, which I think is quite ironic on a couple different levels. One is that um, he seems to be advocating for a, a world um, that where every country is responsible for its own security, and that will lead to peace. And I find that ironic because if Paul is the realist that he claims, um, then he should know that there is such a thing as a security dilemma. Um, and in fact, if every country is responsible um, for its own security, then many you know, realists would argue that war is inevitable in that case. Um, uh, so, and, and spell that out a little bit. Why is that? Right. Um, because um, if every country is responsible for its own security, um, then one can never be entirely sure of other countries' intentions. Um, and so there's always an incentive to build up your own security for defensive purpose, purposes, which can then register as a hostile attempt to other nations, thus leading to a spiral of sorts um, and crises and inevitably war. And the other reason why I find uh, that argument I ironic is that the U.S. has had its fingers in the security pies of every other major power in on Earth um, since World War II. Um, and that has led to peace. <laughs> so, um, look, the claim that there, there's actually a lot that Paul and I agree on. Um, the claim that U.S. that the U.S. should try to promote democracy in whatever way they think is right, um, that is a fundamentally uh, misguided view. Um, and it's a very different claim than the one that I'm making, which is that the U.S. has a responsibility to support democracy. So that's a crucial distinction. If some individuals in the administration try to, quote unquote, support democracy in Iraq, but have no idea what they're doing, um, so they bludgeon the country with bombs or starve the people through sanctions, that is not supporting democracy, in my view. And so the failures and the negative consequences that Paul points to um, does not bear on my position and is in some way irrelevant to the debate. So that's a key philosophical point. Whether or not we have a responsibility to support democracy is a different question, is a normative question, um, apart 
from the empirical question of how has that been going for us so far. Um, and I agree with with Paul that, that so far we've been doing a pretty bad job of it. But that doesn't necessarily mean that we should, shouldn't engage the effort, just that we need to take a different strategy or procedural route to do so. So you asked me, for example, so let me provide one. One possible route to support democracy is by restricting our affirmative support to dictators. We haven't actually been neutral. It goes back to my previous point um, in this regard. By one conservative estimate, the United States currently provides military to support to over 73% of the world's dictatorships. We don't need to be providing anti-protest riot gear. We don't need to be providing surveillance technology. We don't need to be providing intelligence to dictators so that they can fight off these protests. Doing so might increase our short-term economic profits or perhaps solidify our military alliances, but that's precisely what I'm arguing, that we should bear their opportunity, the opportunity costs of not providing Saudi Arabia with tear gas and riot gear in order to fulfill our responsibility to democracy movements. The fact is that America's identity as a nation is inseparable from our commitment to liberal and democratic values, however you feel about the status of democracy in America, and we can have that discussion, I think very few of us are willing to abdicate the ideal or the goal in its entirety. So, Paul, how do you respond? Well, I would say there's a couple things. I mean, again, as Rochelle pointed out, there is a lot that we agree on. And you know, if I'm wearing my realist hat, then I would have to absolutely say, of course, yes, that the prospects of a security dilemma breaking out, if you embrace the idea that sovereignty should be the um, the promotion, protection of U.S. sovereignty um, and allowing other countries to exercise their sovereignty could be the consequence of of that, that a security dilemma could break out because of that. Absolutely, that could be the case. Um, But the question becomes, um, is that actually going to lead to a worse outcome than what we've seen with the U.S.? trying to enforce shared values, right? That's that's kind of the question in hand. Uh, you know, Rochelle mentioned that the, the U.S. since World War II has created a, because it's taken on responsibility for protecting democracy, creating international institutions, promoting trade, that this has created a more peaceful world. Well, I think there's a lot of folks who would want to beg to differ with that. And so what would be the evidence that you would offer for why that hasn't well why I would, that isn't true i would say that on the one hand it is true we have not had another world war one or world war two absolutely that's so that, that's presumably a good thing that is presumably a good thing however the, the yet qu- yet <laughs> yet and that's also an important point yet just takes a little bit um that's another topic for another time um but on the other hand, those were very anomalous circumstances. Like I said, if you go back to the U.S. itself, the U.S. was very much, prior to World War I, was very much focused on itself, its own issues, its own problems. And this was in line with, if you take a deep reading, careful reading of the famous farewell address by George Washington, it's not an isolationist tome. I think some people read it as an isolationist tome of like, you know, beware of entangling alliances and so forth. But what he's saying is the U.S. has to be a beacon to the world, an example to the world, but it can't go around getting involved in other people's, other countries, other nations' problems until it's settled at home. And you could make the 
argument that it, things were not yet settled at home when suddenly these anomalies of World War One and World War Two came in and thrust the U.S. to this position of dominance. Um, and then as a result, saying, okay, well, I guess we're here now. We might as well start doing nation building, world building, order building. And the question then becomes is, well, was the U.S. effective at that? And, you know, Rochelle pointed out several examples of saying, well, in many ways, the U.S. in that role didn't exercise its power very responsibly, such as um, instigating coups, such as um, promoting insurgencies, such as supporting proxy warfare. And I would be America first policy would actually say those were bad things, too. And I think that was at a point that we've agreed on as well, is it's not just that the U.S. doesn't have a responsibility to um, support pro-democracy movements. It also shouldn't be causing coups that undermine other democratic regimes um, or supporting uh, rebel groups fighting governments or supporting governments that are fighting rebel groups. The U.S. should really not be interfering in other countries' affairs. So let me jump on that because this is something Rochelle put on the table quite directly is that the U.S. Uh, often actively supports, provides material support, financial support, military support for regimes that are oppressing domestic um, democracy movements. Um, is your argument that we should end all of those activities and the support for Egypt and the support for Saudi Arabia and whichever your, you know, whichever one this is? Should we, it's not that we're a neutral actor now. Um, so how should we play those situations? The best way, I think, for those situations to be played is you want to sit there and prioritize what are U.S. interests. And since its founding, U.S. interests has always been promotion of economic exchange. And so you sit there and say, okay, does supporting this government help U.S. economic interests? Um, does it help ensure U.S. security? Now, in the process of doing that, Again, you want to make sure that the U.S. is doing it in a way that is not necessarily undermining or interfering with what's happening within the country. So it's one thing to form an alliance with a country. It's another thing to say, oh, to form that alliance, we need to overthrow your government in order to get a government in hand that's going to – that would be a step too far, I think, with an America first policy. The other aspect to this is even in instances where the U.S. has made – say, lip service to a pro-democracy protest. That has led to a situation, which is something else I find very ironic, because a key, a key part of the research of my colleague is on the notion of backlash, and that how at times when you try to shame a government because of human rights violations, because of, say, cracking down on a pro-democracy movement, that can actually instigate that government to double down on that action. And so, and I'm sure Rochelle could say more about that because she's, she's the expert on this. And so that's one of the things I find very ironic is that that actual policy even points to why the U.S. should not be in a position of voicing support to these movements because it can actually make the situation worse for the protesters. Um, another quote that I really like on this point was an EU official during the Arab Spring and the EU was trying to decide what kind of support can we offer to the um, Egyptian movement there. And he made this statement. He said, at the end of the day, this is up for the Egyptians to decide 
we can't impose this on them. We need to allow, it has to be an internal process that decides this. We can't externally pressure them to adopt, say, democracy, one policy or another. Okay. I will note that you dodged the question of should we be providing material and military support to those people who are trying to put down the pro-democracy movements. But let me let me jump in, uh, Rochelle, and just challenge a little bit some of uh, the arguments that you've been making. Um, you know, Paul makes a makes this argument that we have real security interests here. And implicit in that is that they are different than the values, supporting these values. And if we support these values, it will put us in conflict with our security, with the U.S. security issues. And for Paul, it's a it's prioritizing those security interests above everything else. Um, how do you react um, to that? Why doesn't this effectively, to be crude, undermine fundamental security interests of the United States. I suppose I have difficulty with the underlying premise that there are choices that the United States is facing where that is as clean as the way that you or Paul has presented it, that either we support democracy protests or we get blown up. It's very rarely that cut and dry. The um, United States foreign policy officials are constantly trying to interpret and navigate what American interests are, both short-term and long-term. And the empirical record shows that when we try to take this often short-term interest-focused view, it hasn't worked out that well for us in the long-term. So if we're talking about backlash, let's talk about backlash and the, all of the cases in which the United States has instigated coups, given material support to dictators, given you know the tear gas, uh, financial support uh, that crushes these movements, so on and so forth, in under the banner of American security interests, very often in the context of the Cold War. So what would be an example for, for you of a case where the U.S. had taken that approach and it you know, has gone wrong? So I think one particular prescient case right now um, is the uh, Iran. And in 1953, the, the United States, in cooperation with the United Kingdom, um, helped to execute a covert overthrow of Prime Minister Mossadegh, who is a democratically elected leader in that country. Um, you can draw a straight line from that to the 1979 revolution, which of course brings us to the pickle that we are in today. Um, the fact is, is that yes, U.S. intervening in other countries on supported democracy has often backfired. But for as many cases as you can point to um, where we've tried to support democracy and it's backfired, us working in our very short-term myopic, you know, quote-unquote, security or economic interest has just as often, um, if not more, uh, brought us to absolutely catastrophic uh, security crises um, in the long term. So when you have the situation where we're, look, we're living in a very complex world, we're not entirely sure how our actions today are going to unfold 7, 10, 20 years from now, um, and involves an art and involves a, a, some interpretation, we should factor in this principle and our values into that 
strategic calculus. So, Paul, great example of we pursued security interests over through a democratic regime on a security rationale, and um, it's brought us a world of of hurt for decades. It's a terrific example. And as I said before, I also think that if you really are truly in line with an American first view, the U.S. shouldn't have done that, right? The U.S. should not be trying to promote democratic movements in non-democratic countries, and the U.S. should not be trying to promote non-democratic movements in democratic uh, countries, that the U.S. should not be intervening in the internal affairs of a country. And so I completely agree that the example of Iran or, you know, again, the the, the Cold War was notorious for this in terms of the U.S. as well as Soviet Union, both using coups to overthrow governments, some of them democratically elected. And I think a true America first policy would say those were bad ideas. Those should not have been pursued. Just the same as helping to promote a democracy movement today in Iran or today in China is also against is a policy the U.S. should not be pursuing. So we're in a moment where there are a lot of big issues being debated about how the U.S. should react in the world. President Trump's administration has called a lot of traditional policy into into question. As you see this debate, um, where does the current administration line up um, on on this debate? Are they in one camp or another? um, Or is there something different that's playing out? I mean, obviously, based on like the quotes that I gave early on, it would seem that, and indeed Trump himself uses this phrase, America first. Now, of course, that phrase, America first, has you know a, a legacy going back to Lindbergh and, and, and so forth that um, is not necessarily the most savory uh, legacy. So you would say that on the surface, yes, it does seem like the U.S., the current administration is following America first policy. Um, however, you know, at the same time, um, is it really? I mean, is it... Uh, because it seems like there's times where it, the U.S. is trying to, but trying not. For example, Trump is saying, well, we shouldn't be involved in what's happening in Syria, so we're going to pull out because we're just making matters worse. But then every time he tries to do that, we don't. Um, same thing with Afghanistan. We shouldn't be – we're actually making things worse, so we should try to pull out. But every time they try, you can't. This is something that's motivated like the – um, a lot of a big pushback against say, U.S. endless wars, if you will, is this notion that, OK, you came in on an America first policy that the U.S. should be focused on itself. And part of that should be starting to extract itself from these various policies that seem like are not. It's very unclear how this is in U.S. interest to be part of it and yet has failed to do so. And that leads to a whole other conversation about inertia with U.S. foreign policy and bureaucracy. Some people call it a deep state, if you will. But, um, but yeah, I think that on the one hand, you do see you know very much the rhetoric of America first. On the other hand, there are you know definitely policies that you sit there and say, well, is that that doesn't seem all that different from what other administrations were following prior to the Trump administration. So, Rochelle, do you see your position reflected in, in U.S. foreign policy? A lot of, you know, the conventional wisdom is after the wars in Iraq and the Middle East, the so-called endless wars, that the American public wants to wants to pull back and not engage in this in this agenda. Do you do you see expressions of your your position in U.S. politics today? 
I don't. And it's a lonely position. <laughs> it's a lonely place to be. Um, because I certainly am not nostalgic for the kind of liberal internationalism that instantiated itself in the Clinton administration or in the Bush administration. I came of age during the Iraq war. I think that had a profound effect on the way that I view global politics. So if my position is heard as we should go back to these endless wars, um, then I'm not communicating that position clearly. Uh, I think what is so frustrating about this conversation is that it really does need a third space, if you will, um, or a new paradigm of how can we live by the principles that we ascribe to without, as Paul, I think, put it well, march on and tell people what to do in lecture. Um, Trump certainly doesn't manifest that for me. Uh, I don't think previous administrations have, um, but I maintain hope that sometime in the future we can develop um, the kind of position that I'm advocating for today. So I want to exit with the question about how our competition with China may play into this debate if you look forward. Um, some people argue that one of the things that we bring to the world is a set of values that's very attractive and in order to build alliances, things like democracy and personal freedom are part of how we build those alliances. Others argue this is that that's a big mistake that we need to counter China in terms of building up military and economic power and using that as a way to contest uh, for contestation. How do each of you see the rise of China, the increasing great power competition as affecting um, this debate and U.S. policy choices? I think it really goes back um, to the question of what kind of world do we want to live in? Now, obviously, there are uh, a tremendous amount of questions about how best um, to uh, go about doing that. But the fundamental question that we have to start with is what kind of world do we want to live in? Do we want to live in a world where we completely abdicate that ideal completely? Meaning that you can't use it in an argument, you can't use it in a policy brief, you can't use it in an op-ed, that we've completely given up on the ideal of democracy and all of the benefits and human welfare that I described earlier. And I think that's what the future of the international order, if you want to put it that way, that's the question that brings to bear, is do we want to have a situation in which that is no longer a goal or a principle completely, and it's all about real politique? I don't want to live in that world. I think very few of the listeners would want to abdicate that goal completely. That's where I stand. So my view is that in many ways, the idea that the U.S. can, say, promote democracy or at least give support, moral support, verbal support to the idea of democracy in various countries and, and root on democratic movements is a luxury of the unipolar moment. It's something that the U.S. could do it when it was in a position of dominance, um, because as we've brought up many times during this talk, that really wasn't going on during the time of bipolarity of the Cold War. And as we move into a world, as we're moving 
into a world of multipolarity, we're moving away from the unipolar moment with the rise of China, with the reassertion of Russian power, for example, um, we're going to lose that luxury. That's not going to be a priority. It's And so in that way, you could say that if anything, I think there will be a natural proclivity for people to want to gravitate towards an American first type policy. They may not call it that, but they might say, look, we're not in a world anymore that lends itself to us just saying, here are our ideals and we can promote them anywhere. We're going to be in a world where there's going to be other powers who can check that. And if that's the case, then we need to just make sure that we focus on our problems. And I think that's – so that's how I see this kind of change in the international system possibly altering this debate. So I want to thank both of you for being here. I think one of the things that's true about policy is you have to make decisions, right? And what you both helped clarify and lay out is what are the fundamental assumptions between those choices and also um, what kinds of worlds that they will will lead to. So I, I really uh, appreciate both of you being here, uh, Rochelle Terman and Paul Post, both of the University of Chicago. Um, thanks for being on Deep Dish. Thank you for having us. Thank you. In light of this debate, we want to do an experiment and give you a chance to tell us what you think. Should the United States support pro-democracy protests abroad? Shoot us a tweet with your thoughts on Twitter at Chicago Council, hashtag Deep Dish. That's at Chicago Council, hashtag Deep Dish. And follow the discussion on the Deep Dish on Global Affairs page on Facebook. And if you like the show, do me a favor and tap the subscribe button in your podcast app. You can find our show under Deep Dish on Global Affairs wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you think you know someone who would enjoy today's episode, please take a moment and send it to them as well. As a reminder, the opinions you heard belong to the people who expressed them and not the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. Our audio engineer for this episode is Andy Zarnecki. I'm Brian Hansen, and we'll be back soon with another slice of Deep Dish.